Welcome to episode five of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Joe, and I am really excited to have everyone here this week for what is going to be a super packed show. It's going to be so packed, in fact, that I'm going to dispense with my normal inane pleasantries and we are going to get right into things. So for the news, or as I'm coming to call it, the segment of the show where I talk about Kickstarter projects... I got two little quick items in here this week. So I previously talked to you guys about the Jane Jensen Pinkerton Road Kickstarter project. Well, that, since our last episode, has since uh, reached its uh, conclusion and it has successfully funded. They were looking to get uh, somewhere around $300,000 and they, in fact, ended off with uh, just over 5,800 backers and 435,300 and $16. So that's that's really great for Jane Jensen, her husband, and the other people involved in the Pinkerton Road studio. And hopefully sooner rather than later, we are going to see uh, some, some really cool, eerie, Gabriel Knight-esque mystery adventure games coming out of there. So that's really, really, really great. Number two is since the last time I spoke to you guys... I came across news of another Kickstarter project, again, covering, or again, trying to uh, to recreate an adventure game of old. Uh, and this one actually is not a game that I played, but it uh, the Tex Murphy uh, series of games is uh, is trying to, is looking to get rebooted. The Kickstarter is called Tex Murphy Project Fedora, and uh, it started a little while ago and has 23 days left to go. It ends on Saturday, June 16th, oh, which is my fifth wedding anniversary. Impressive. So right now they're looking for $450,000. Currently they are at around $250,000 with 23 days to go. So if you are a fan of the Tex Murphy games, then head over to Kickstarter and take a look, and if you deem it appropriate or you deem it relevant enough to part with your hard-earned money then uh then definitely give they have a whole bunch of stuff a whole bunch of pledge levels and rewards just like all other kickstarter projects do so that's it for the news because we have to start getting to our big awesome main topic Yes, indeed. Today we are going to be talking about the six games in the Space Quest series. All right, so Space Quest, one of my favorite video game series of all time. Really excited on this show. I probably said that I'm excited about 10 times so far. So, I guess we should begin at the beginning. The Space Quest series is a group of six graphical adventure games, though really it's seven since the original game was actually released in two versions, but we'll get to that later. Uh, These games follow the misadventures of intergalactic space janitor Roger Wilco, as he is repeatedly thrust into situations where the fate of the galaxy rests upon his bumbling and inept shoulders. 
So as we usually do, let's talk a little bit about the genre. Space Quest is a graphical adventure game. Now, we did already cover a game of this genre way back in episode one with Sam and Max Hit the Road. So to recap quickly, a graphic adventure game casts you in the role of a hero who is given a quest early on in the game. The goal of the game is generally to complete said quest. Now, this, as the kind of basic spirit of an adventure game, is true of both Sam and Max and of Space Quest. However, the way they go about it is quite a bit different. Uh, Sam and Max, as it was made by LucasArts, follows kind of LucasArts's adventure game philosophy. Their philosophy, their model of adventure gaming is very friendly. As you progress through the game, uh, you're generally excuse me, you're generally not allowed to get into situations where you can become stuck or you can die. Uh, Sierra Adventure Game model or Sierra's adventure game model is actually quite a bit more unforgiving and uh, nothing like LucasArts's approach that we already talked about. And uh, I will definitely get into this as we move a little farther into the uh, into the show and as we move through the games in the series. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So, in this episode, we will briefly cover each game in the series, so each of the six uh, Space Quest games. So, it's basically going to be an entire episode of mostly dev story, but then obviously mixed in with uh, with the plot and graphics, gameplay of each one, what was unique about each game, and uh, you know, we'll do the bulk of the the background of the history as we uh, as we get to talking about the first game. So, like I said, we will begin at the beginning. The Space Quest series was a collaboration between two Sierra staffers, Scott Murphy and Mark Crow, or as they would soon name themselves, the two guys from Andromeda. So Scott Murphy states that he did not start out making computer games, nor was it really even a major ambition of his kind of in his life. Uh, Before he got a job at Sierra, he played one of their adventure games and uh, he enjoyed it. Since uh, purportedly he hated the job he was uh, in at the time, he kept calling Sierra to see if he could work as a dealer returns representative, basically uh, answering the phone and doing kind of admin type work. They they said no, (laughs) repeatedly. But uh, in his interactions with them, he played more of their games, he learned more things about the company, and eventually he had a pretty good stable of knowledge. So with this stable of Sierra-specific knowledge and tech knowledge in general, uh, he was eventually brought on as a product support representative. Initially, he was just supporting games. So if you had a problem installing your game or you had a bad disc or you know something technical was wrong with your game, you'd call Sierra support and Scott Murphy would answer the phone and, and help you out. So uh, he did this for a while. Eventually, he uh, also expanded into supporting Sierra's business products. And by the mid-1980s, Scott had, uh, sorry, Scott Murphy had become the customer support manager. So he was, he was running the show in the customer support department at Sierra Online. Unfortunately, though, around the same time, things were not looking so great for the company uh, financially, kind of in the mid-80s. They were, in fact, in danger of going bankrupt. So there was a reorg, a reorganization for, uh, for non-corporate folk, a right-sizing, if you will, and, uh, and there were layoffs. So Scott Murphy was not uh, laid off. He was actually spared 
termination. But since there were many less people working, he had to take on some additional responsibilities. So one thing that he started doing in addition to running product support was uh, he started doing software quality assurance. So in his new quality assurance and or QA role, he was, uh, he was much closer to the actual creations of the game than he was over in, in product support. He was much more exposed to quote unquote how the sausage was made. Uh, this intrigued him and he felt that he wanted to give game creation a go. He thought, you know, I'm seeing all these guys who aren't much smarter than me making games and you know, I think I can make a game. So uh, he went up to, uh, to Ken Williams, the founder and president and CEO of Sierra, and, uh, and asked for the opportunity to do so. Initially, Williams said, no, you know, there's no time. You have too much work to do. There's too many things that we need to do and, and get done. You don't have time to do it. But, you know, he kept pestering Ken Williams over and over again for, for a certain amount of time. And after much pestering and haranguing, Ken agreed, <laughs> as Ken Williams says in, in interviews, apparently only to shut him up more than anything. You know, so that's, that's kind of the story up to this point of Scott Murphy. The other guy from Andromeda's name, as I said, is Mark Crow. Now he's an artist. He started in Sierra's art department in 1983, and his original job was to, uh, was to design packaging and documentation. His first computer graphics project for the company was to create imagery for Winnie the Pooh and the Hundred Acre Wood. From there, he also went on to do graphics work for King's Quest II. And then in 1985, he came to work on The Black Cauldron, a tie-in to that year's Disney movie, which, uh, which had the same name. It was this project where, uh, where the two men would first meet, form a friendship, and decide to develop an adventure game together. So Murphy and Crow both had a great love for science fiction. They felt like they could do a game that was kind of in the same vein as King's Quest, which was, you know, kind of Sierra's biggest seller at the time, one of their most popular games. But unlike King's Quest, which was set in medieval times and was generally quite a serious game, uh, the guys wanted to create a silly, funny sci-fi adventure. Uh, Williams had given Murphy the go-ahead, you know, previously to try his hand at designing a game, off the clock, mind you, uh, but there were really no more stipulations than that. So uh, Murphy and Crow approached Ken Williams with the idea and uh, I actually found a, a posting by Ken Williams himself, uh, and he recalls it just like this. And I quote, My recollection on Space Quest is that all of the credit for its origin goes to Scott Murphy and Mark Crow. They came to me with the idea, and I remember not being overwhelmed by it at first, but approving them some time to build a short demo of the game so that I could better see what they had in mind. I loved their demo! There's two exclamation points. Once I actually saw the simple three or four room adventure they built, I immediately approved the project and they pretty much took it from there. So based on the simple four room demo that they made, uh, the two guys embarked on the task of creating their sci-fi quest game. Uh, according to Crow, they had two major goals in creating Space Quest. First, that the player felt as though they were in a movie. You know, they had to play the game, they had to make decisions and do things, but they could also just kind of kick back and enjoy the scenery. Secondly, the player had to feel as though they really were the character on screen. Not in the manner of kind of a role-playing game where you take on the character and you mold the way they are, but, you know, that you really experience what the character experiences. Like you said, very much like a movie. You know, you feel for the character, you relate to the character, and, you know, that was a very big goal for him. So with all that, uh, in October 
1986, with mostly the efforts of, uh, of only Scott Murphy and Mark Crow, Space Quest Chapter 1, The Sarian Encounter, was released. And it, being 1986, sounded a little bit like this. Space Quest Chapter 1, The Sarian Encounter. So, in this game, players take control of, uh, of our hero, whose name you are asked to enter into the ship's computer as the game begins. Uh, you can write anything you want in here. However, if you do leave the name blank, the default character name is set to Roger Wilco, which by Space Quest 4 kind of becomes our de facto hero name. Uh, so the original version of Space Quest 1 used Sierra's Adventure Game Interpreter Engine, also known as AGI. So in 1986, mice were not really uh, very common on PCs. Now, granted, on the then two-year-old Macintosh, you know, mice were a very normal thing, but on regular IBM-compatible straight-up PCs, uh, you know, a lot of people, most people in fact, did not uh, have a mouse. So to uh, to control the game, the AGI system used keyboard input only, and uh, <laughs> so basically to, to move your character around the screen, you would use the arrow keys, and uh, to do everything else that was more complex than that, you would use an at times frustrating text parser. So what a text parser is, is basically a system that will uh, take, I guess in this case, English text, and um, you know, process it to see, to try and extract meaning from it. So what this really means is say you want to move Roger through a door, you walk him up to the door with the arrow keys and you would then type into the text parser, open door. If you're in the right place, in front of a door, close enough to it, etc., then uh, the door would open. If you're too far, the text parser would say, move closer. If you inadvertently misspelled open door, it would say something snarky like, I don't know what you mean, or I can't do that, or something fun like that. Anyways, a lot of the game's fun, especially in the, the first game and the follow-up games that still supported the text parser, was trying to figure out exactly what to write into uh, this parser to make it do things. It was at times a big challenge, and you know, you'd be there racking your brain for a couple of minutes, if not longer than that, trying to figure out how to do the thing you want to do, or if the thing you wanted to do was even something that the game wanted you to do. So, that's kind of the control system, and as I did with Sam and Max, I'm going to cover the story here. I don't really think I'm spoiling much with regard to uh, a game that came out in 1986. So, the game's uh, intro text gives you the background of the situation, you can find even more detail about uh, the game's background in the manual, which, again, follow-up from last week, reminds us with these old games, read the manual, otherwise you will be lost. You need to read the manual. So, in short, this game, and most of the Space Quest games, take place in a planetary system known as Irnon. Irnon's sun is slowly dying. The last best hope for the inhabitants is an experimental new device known as Genesis, or Actually, it's known as the Star Generator, but it's basically the Genesis device from Star Trek II. So, Irnon's scientific community has created the Star Generator with the goal of turning one of Irnon's uninhabited worlds into a new, vibrant, living sun. I know that 
there's there's holes in that. It doesn't make a ton of sense, but you know, it's a funny video game. Let's go with it. So you are a janitor aboard the science vessel Arcada, which is just returning from a successful test of the star generator. As you wake up from an unsanctioned on-duty nap, you realize the ship has come under attack by the evil Sarians. So this is where the fun begins, and this is where you quickly learn about Space Quest's both unforgiving and hilarious death system. So upon crossing the smashed entrance to the Star Generator room, Roger sees that the device has indeed been taken by the Sarians. So his goal is now to find any info he can on the device and escape with it and with his life. In doing this, Roger, of course, has to avoid Sarian soldiers that are crawling over the ship. If he runs into them, uh, he immediately gets shot and killed. In addition, taking too long to do certain actions or not doing things in the right order can also cause many gruesome or hilarious deaths. So, you know, there's a lot of hilarious, funny deaths in the game on the ship. You know, there's a couple of of things, you know, the, the main one being getting shot by Sarians and uh, having, again, the game interpreter telling you uh, snarkily, as usual, how uh, how inept you are at avoiding things like bullets and uh, and dying. <laughs> so after venturing into the uh, data cartridge repository and somehow find, figuring out which data cartridge to get that contains uh, important information on it, uh, Roger has to make his way down to the docking bay and find an escape pod. So here is a great example of the sequence and kind of time-based gameplay of Space Quest. So once you've arrived at the docking bay, probably getting shot quite a few times in the process, you have to do in the following order these actions. So number one, look at the control panel in the docking bay. Number two, press the platform button to raise the escape pod. Number three, Enter the escape pod. Number four, close the escape pod door. Number five, put on your seatbelt. Number six, look at the pod's control panel. Number seven, turn on the power. Number eight, turn on the auto nav system. Number nine, pull the throttle. So finally, after doing these nine things in this sequence, you launch from the Arcada into places unknown. So a lot of this game is trial and error. There's really no in-game hints aside from what Roger can observe around him and your cleverness in picking up on things that, you know, while not being immediately obvious, do kind of guide you in the right direction. So in this case with the, you know, the escape pod, if you don't perform all nine of these steps within a given amount of time, and I'm not entirely sure what that amount of time is, but uh, if you don't perform them in that amount of time, uh, the ship will explode with you on it. Then again, if you don't do the things in the right order, so, so say, for example, you skip number five and you don't wear your seat belt, you'll be killed as the pod launches by being smashed into the glass and turned into a bloody pulp. If you don't set the auto nav system, the pod will wander aimlessly through the cosmos until it runs out of power and you die. So, you know, this may sound frustrating and at times it is. However, this is what really makes this game a lot of fun. Going through events, trying to figure out what to do, how to get them done, how to type commands into the parser so it understands what you want. It really, really works your mind. It really forces you to think quickly and, you know, think somewhat logically, but at times, you know, also you have to think way out there to solve a problem. It's just really, 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 really fun. Uh, it also teaches you the the... Sierra Adventure Gamers' mantra of save early and save often. 
there are no retries, there's no continues, there's no, no oops, I messed up, let's go back five minutes. If you haven't saved your game for the last, say, 45 minutes and you die, that 45 minutes of gameplay is gone. Sounds a little bit like Diablo 3. <laughs> oh, I had to take a little, little, a little dig there. Anyway, so after escaping the Arcada and the Sarians, Roger's pod lands on the desert planet of Corona. After wandering around through the desert, contending with a Sarian spider droid sent to kill him and navigating the hazards of an underground cave, uh, Roger enters a pitch black room. Here again is a great example of the wonderful sadism of Space Quest's designers. In this room, you encounter a large holographic alien head that speaks to you in an unintelligible language. If you're really playing the game and not using a walkthrough, it may have already taken you hours to get to this point, like a long time, just figuring things out, trying to get there, figuring out how to defeat the spider droid, figuring out that you can get into these underground caverns. All of these things. Well, the solution to this situation with the alien speaking an unknown language is to activate the translation device you picked up in the airlock back on the Arcada before you escaped and it blew up. You, you, you did pick up the translation device back on the Arcada, right? You know, because you can't go back there because it blew up. Oh, you didn't get it? Oh, sorry, you're hosed. So I hope you have a save game that's, you know, back on board the Arcada so you can go back and get that thing and kind of redo the game back from that point. So this happens quite a few times across all of the Space Quest games. Luckily, uh, the games do have a great sense of humor about it. But, you know, like I said before, without a hint book or without you know, a walkthrough or something like that, it can be quite frustrating to realize that you missed an item or you missed performing an, or experiencing an event maybe what could be hours ago that leaves you at this point in a dead end. And, you know, at times it might even be very complicated to figure out without help that, you know, you did miss something because you wouldn't think, oh, well, you know, I back, you know, three stops, uh, three locations ago, I forgot to do something or I didn't even realize that there was an item around that I need, would need now. So anyway, some players love it, some players hate it. It's just one of those things that, you know, if you're playing these Sierra adventure games, it's, it, it's one of those things you have to contend with and you may enjoy it, you may not. All that aside, if in fact you did remember to take the translator, the alien head speaks a language or the, his, his language is translated to English. And uh, he says that he will help you to, uh, to escape these caverns and get off the planet potentially. However, he tasks you with disposing of the vicious Orat, a beast that has been causing him trouble. So Roger does in fact dispose of the Orat after again, some figuring out of things. He returns to the alien where he is given a ground skimmer and directions to the closest human settlement, Yulian's Flats. So again, here we arrive at an integral part of the Space Quest game experience, the gratuitous arcade sequence. So Roger is required to pilot the skimmer from the alien cave to Yulian's Flats. Since the skimmer doesn't hover very high off the ground, it is in fact prone to being hit by stones on the desert floor. So you have to basically pilot the skimmer from a, a behind, from kind of a, a view behind the skimmer going left and right to, uh, to avoid the stones. Five hits and you are toast. I don't think many players really relish these arcade sequences as they can generally be pretty challenging, especially if you're kind of in the sitting back, thinking, adventure game uh, mindset. Uh, though, you know, there, there's quite a few tricks to get through them, such as slowing down the game speed and 
you can save at any point during it. So, you know, every time you pass a rock, you can save the game. And if you crash, you can revert. A lot of things like that. So some gamers, you know, while I said some people don't really love it, some gamers actively hate these action sequences being dropped into their cerebral, mindful, you know, thinking adventure game. Though I honestly really have a hard time calling Space Quest cerebral. So once Roger reaches the settlement after the gratuitous arcade sequence is complete, uh, he enters a local bar which uh, has a wide variety of performers that change every little while, like uh, fun representations of ZZ Top or the Blues Brothers and things like that with uh, accompanying 8-bit PC speaker versions of their of their songs, which is hilarious. Uh, so anyways, he overhears the location of the Sarian's ship. He then realizes that he needs a ship and he has no money. So he does, however, have a ground skimmer. So he sells it in an eerily similar deal to the one Luke Skywalker made, selling his land speeder in Star Wars A New Hope. Uh, and he has to, unfortunately, he doesn't get enough money to purchase a ship, so he has to play video slots to uh, to make enough cash for a space, both a space-worthy ship and an accompanying pilot droid who looks and acts eerily like uh, R2-D2. So he does all this, blasts off, and infiltrates the Deltor, the, or maybe the Deltar. I'm sorry, I'm not exactly sure how it's pronounced. But anyways, the Deltar is the Sarian's ship. So he gets on there, makes his way to the star generator, and sets it to self-destruct, again, eerily like the Genesis device in Star Trek II. He successfully escapes the ship shortly before it explodes. Returning to his homeworld of Xenon in the Irnon system, he is awarded the Golden Mop and becomes an instant celebrity. Yay! You have succeeded in defeating the Sarians and winning Space Quest 1. So, Space Quest 1 quickly became a hit, selling over 100,000 copies in 1986 and 1987. So, since this is, I believe, at this point, the oldest game I have talked about on the show, let's go into the tech specs. The original version of Space Quest sported 16 color EGA graphics at a whopping resolution of 160 by 200 pixels. Uh, since there were really no consumer sound cards available in 1986, all the sound was generated by the PC speaker. Uh, PC speakers could only hear a single tone at once. Tandy, PC Junior, and Amiga machines had a three voice track, and the lucky Apple IIGS users could hear a comparatively rich 15 voice soundtrack. Uh, the soundtrack I played at the top of talking about Space Quest 1 was actually the Amiga version, so it had the, uh, the three voices. So the, uh, the PC version would just have kind of the main dum-dum-dum-da-da-da-dum, that part without the accompanying background beeps, I guess you want to call them. <laughs> Anyways, as stated above, Roger was controlled via the keyboard and arrow keys, and more complex commands were entered via the text parser. The main theme song that you heard was composed by Mark Crow himself, so they didn't have anyone additional coming in to do the music. So that was 1986. Uh, a little fact with regard to Space Quest 1 is that in 1991, Space Quest 1 was remade by Sierra, featuring 256 color VGA graphics, a full MIDI score, which is the music that I played way back when, when I first started talking about Space Quest. That was kind of the, uh, the revised Space Quest 1 intro by Ken Allen and used Sierra's new Sierra Creative Interpreter, SCI, scripting interface. Uh, it dropped a text parser for a full mouse interface, which would match the one that will be featured in Space Quest IV, which was kind of releasing around the same time. Uh, the remake was very, very well received, and it was a really great upgrade to a really, really great 
game. So that brings us to the second game, Space Quest 2, Vohal's Revenge. So, Space Quest 2, with all the uh, success of Space Quest 1, being that it sold so well, the two guys and, uh, from Andromeda were obviously tasked with creating a sequel. So to that end, they created Space Quest 2, Vohal's Revenge. Uh, a comic is included in the manual to explain to the player what's happened since Space Quest 1, when Roger became the hero of Xenon. We also learn of the villain Sludge Volhall, who was behind the original Sarian attack from the last game, and uh, how he was basically driven mad. Roger, despite his newfound status as Hero of Xenon, is transferred to Xenon Orbital Station 4 and promoted to the auspicious office of head and only janitor. Uh, all is quiet until he's abducted by Sludge Volhall's thugs. As Roger is being transported to the Labion Labor Mines as punishment for thwarting Sludge's original plan back in Space Quest 1, the uh, prison hover platform that he's, that he's being transported on crash lands in a nearby jungle on the planet. So basically his, his goal now is, uh, since he's the only survivor of the crash, is to escape the planet Labion and uh, you know get back to thwart... Vohal's evil plan, which he had uh, previously explained to Roger in classical villain style. So while he's trying to do all this stuff, he has to contend with all kinds of different dangers in the Labion jungle, and a great recurring gag is set up in this game. So to help him solve a puzzle in the game, uh, Roger has happens to have a, uh, a mail order form in his inventory right from the beginning of the game for a free Labion Terror Beast mating whistle. So he sends away for it, he gets it right away because it's the future and that's how the mail works. And uh, he uses it to solve the puzzle and proceed with the game. So keep this free Labion Terror Beast mating whistle in your mind as we go through the rest of the games. So either side, he manages to escape his pursuers and soon steals a ship and reaches Sledge Vohal's asteroid base once again. So again, it's up to Roger to stop Vohal's evil plan. He wants to eradicate all sentient life from the planet Xenon by launching millions of cloned insurance salesmen at the planet, and he will kill everyone by annoying them and irritating them to death. So in the end, he succeeds in doing so. He succeeds in defeating Vohal. He succeeds in thwarting the launch of the salesman, hopefully, and uh, he destroys Volhall's asteroid. Now, in the process of doing this, the only way he can escape from the asteroid is, uh, is by getting into a small space capsule. Uh, as the asteroid is exploding, he's launched into space and uh, suddenly realizes that uh, the capsule or the escape pod or whatever it is that he's in has very limited range and very limited resources. So his only option is to go into cryo sleep and uh, kind of stay floating in space a little bit uh, like the end of Alien, I guess, if I'm remembering Alien properly. And this sets up the sequel, Space Quest Three: The Pirates of Pestulon. 
So again, Space Quest 2 was, was a well-received well game. It didn't have incredible technical differences from Space Quest 1, except that the, uh, the graphics were slightly improved. I mean, the resolution, the color depth were all the same. They just got a bit better at drawing them and animating. Uh, the text parser was much improved, so it could understand more commands. Like, uh, you could type things like look around instead of just look room or inspect room. And again, the sound, as you heard, was via the PC speaker. So this brings us to Space Quest 3, the Pirates of Pestulon. So, Space Quest 3 picks up right where Space Quest 2 leaves off. Roger Wilco is floating in cryosleep in his escape pod, and uh, he's eventually captured by an automatic garbage freighter. As the garbage freighter pulls his ship on and kind of tosses it into its scrap pile, Roger's jarred awake, and... Uh, he kind of comes to and uh, and realizes very quickly that the only thing that he can really do here is uh, is to get off the um, basically get off the ship. He starts poking around and he comes across a derelict uh, a derelict ship called the Aluminum Mallard, which has also been thrown onto the garbage freighter. It uh, basically only needs some minor repairs, and uh, as usual in Space Quest games. Through a series of puzzles, Roger is able to repair the ship and blast his way out of the scow. However, as soon as this happens, we see a difficulty that uh, is lining itself up for Roger to deal with. So remember that whistle that I talked about in Space Quest 2? Roger thought it was free. Turns out <laughs> it wasn't free. Uh, the company that Roger ordered it from has called in collections, and the collection agent comes in the form of Arnoid the Annihilator, which is basically a play on uh, the original Terminator's Arnold Schwarzenegger T-800. And uh, he's been tasked with collecting Roger's life in lieu of cash for his lack of payment. So Roger makes his way to the planet Fleabutt, where he stops in at uh, kind of a novelty shop, and buys a bunch of stuff, and as he's exiting, the uh, <laughs> the android annihilator encounters him, threatens him, and says that for sport, he will let Roger run off for a couple of minutes, and then he will chase him. So, as usual, in a Space Quest game, through a bit of cleverness and good timing and being in the right place at the right time and turning in the right direction at the right time, Roger defeats the Arnoid and... Uh, steals his invisibility belt or not really steals it but take his, takes it from the pile of rubble that is left after he is defeated so what do you do after you defeat a terminator well you go for a burger so roger flies to uh, monolith burger which is a fast food space station and grabs himself a well their version of the happy meal and inside of it is a decoder ring uh so he has this decoder ring and he also looks across the room and sees a new incredible 
stand-up arcade version of the hot new game by the two guys from Andromeda, Astro Chicken. So, of course, he has to go over and play it. He plays Astro Chicken until he beats the game, which basically means landing ten times. So here we have the mini-game and the arcade action for Space Quest Three, which is... Uh, playing or one of them actually is quite a few but the first one is playing astro chicken so as roger defeats the game a uh, secret message pops up in a very weird looking script pulling out the decoder ring roger realizes he can decode the message using the ring and it turns out that it's a uh, a call for help from scott murphy and mark crow the two guys from andromeda who have uh, up to this point in real life created these three games uh, it turns out that the two guys from Andromeda have been captured and enslaved by an evil software company known as Scumsoft, which is being secretly run by the pirates of Pestulon, and they are being forced to make crappy substandard games and uh, and put them out so they can be sold because of their stellar game-making reputation. So Roger decides that he needs to go and save the two guys from Andromeda. Uh, so through a couple of more puzzles, Roger figures out that the uh, Scumsoft headquarters is on the volcan or is on the uh, planet or sorry the moon Pestulon, which is uh, a small moon of the planet, the volcanic planet Ortega. So he goes to Pestulon and he infiltrates uh, Scumsoft's headquarters, eventually making his way to you know posing as a janitor, which isn't really. A big stretch for Roger Wilco, space janitor. Uh, makes his way to the two guys from Andromeda, where they're being held. Frees them, only to be recaptured by the evil Elmo Pug, the CEO of Scumsoft. And uh, he is placed into gladiatorial combat versus Elmo Pug in gigantic Rock'em Sock'em robots. So, second arcade, or the, the the other arcade sequence in this game is you fighting Elmo Pug in a gigantic Rock'em Sock'em robot. If you defeat him, you... And the two guys from Andromeda, or you as Roger, and the two guys from Andromeda escape the moon of Pestulon, fight off some of Scumsoft's skull fighters, and eventually escape, only to be sucked into a black hole and sent into another dimension where the ship comes out in orbit of Earth, lands in California at the Sierra headquarters, where the two guys from Andromeda get hired to make video games by Ken Williams, and Roger Wilco is sent on his way because Sierra had no need for a janitor. So uh, Space Quest 3 is honestly, th this to me is where the Space Quest games really started taking off. The first two games were fun, but they were really somewhat limited graphically. And uh, there are quite a few technical aspects of Space Quest 3 that make it quite different from the previous two games. So the main reason for these technical differences is this is the first Space Quest game to use Sierra's new and improved Sierra Command Interpreter or SCI scripting language, which uh, is the next evolution from the AGI system that the, uh, the previous two games were using. So the new framework allowed for EGA graphics at a resolution of 320 by 200. So we're getting a little a little better than the poor little 160 by 200 that we were looking at before. So this allowed for much more detailed graphics and many more options for smoother animation and fun effects. It was still 16 colors, but uh, you know they were used much better. So you know the, the, the environments looked much better and much more interesting. The animation was much better. 
all things like that. Uh, it also featured a very heavily improved text parser. This was basically the, the pinnacle of Sierra's text parsers. It understood most correctly spelled instructions, and it was also the first Space Quest game to have rudimentary mouse control. Basically, the mouse was really only used to move Roger around, and uh, it wasn't very intelligent about it. It was akin to using the arrow keys. So basically, if you clicked somewhere on the screen, Roger would go there in a straight line, and if there were any obstacles in the way, he'd kind of butt up against them until you made him go a different way. So honestly, in my replay of Space Quest 3, I just kept to using the uh, keyboard because of the lack of pathfinding with the mouse interface. So finally, as you heard right when I started talking about this, Space Quest 3 allowed the use of newly available sound cards such as the Sound Blaster and AdLib. Crow and Murphy took great advantage of this and they got Bob Seidenberg, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, who was the drummer of Supertramp, to compose the music for Space Quest 3. So as you could tell from the uh, the intro music to the game, it's it's a lot quicker, a lot more fun, a lot more poppy, which makes a lot of sense being that uh, the composer was from Supertramp. Uh, the music from this game is honestly really, really awesome. It's fitting, it's fun, and it is well executed. I like this theme so much, I actually used it as the background music in my podcast promo, if anyone's heard that. So as with other games of the time, or definitely games that followed it, uh, the soundtrack was MIDI with support for various cards, including the great-sounding Roland MT-32, which I just lost out on an auction too. Oh well. <laughs> that is Space Quest Three. Again, it was a very popular game. It was very groundbreaking at the time that it came out. And, uh, you know, if you had a sound card, it was an amazing sounding game. And even if you didn't, the, uh, the PC speaker effects were still pretty darn good. And that brings us to Space Quest Four. So, Space Quest IV, Roger Wilco and the Time Rippers. Uh, this was honestly the first Space Quest game I experienced in the universe, and I was amazed by it. Interestingly, as we will see, none of the actual gameplay of this game takes place in Space Quest IV. Uh, so it turns out, in another Terminator reference, I guess, that an infomorphic computer virus version of Sludge Volhall was loaded into Xenon's central computer in the time period of Space Quest XII. Uh, so the evil computer Volhall from the future sends back androids known as the Sequel Police to kill Roger Wilco in the time period of Space Quest IV. However, he is saved at the last minute by two agents who toss him forward into Space Quest XII. From there, he can make his way, or he in his bumbling manner, makes his way to the supercomputer, steals a sequel police time pod, and escapes back from Space Quest 12 into Space Quest 10. In Space Quest 10, he's captured by the latex babes of Esteros, who he unknowingly or had a relationship, or he unknowingly had a relationship with their leader in his version of the future, and she wants revenge on him for abandoning her. 
so in doing that, he's captured. He is almost tortured. But then the latex babe's underground or undersea lair is attacked by a sea slug. Roger defeats the sea slug, gains the once again gains the affection of the latex babes, and together with them, because they're good-looking girls, and uh, they just went through a traumatic experience, and uh, what do generic good-looking girls do after they've gone through a traumatic experience? They go to the mall. At least that's what the game says. I don't know if I agree with that, and my wife isn't around, but I think if she was, she would also not really agree with that. But uh, anyways, they make their way to the Galaxy Galleria Mall, where Roger goes through a couple of little... Uh, Adventures, buys a couple of things, goes shopping, dresses up like a woman, and eventually, after playing the sequel to Astro Chicken, Ms. Astro Chicken, encounters the sequel police. And here again is one of the infamous tough spots in the Space Quest franchise. So to escape the sequel police, Roger has to make his way into the Skate-O-Rama in the middle of the mall. The Skate-O-Rama is a zero-G roller skating rink. Only by taking a very specific path across the Skatorama screens can uh, Roger hope to get away clean from the sequel police. And trust me, this is not easy to figure out. Again, this is one of those cases of save early and save often. If you kind of drop into the zero-g environment and you go up instead of down or left instead of, you know, when you should be going right, the sequel police will very quickly shoot you and you very quickly die. So after eventually figuring out the route for Roger's hair-raising escape from the mall, Roger steals the time pod from the sequel police and makes a pit stop back at Yulian's Flats in Space Quest 1. And now the cool thing about traveling back to Space Quest 1 is not only do you travel back in time, but uh, Yulian's Flats is once again in EGA, very low-res Space Quest 1-looking EGA, and... Uh, you're all, Roger himself is all modern looking, but uh, the environment that he's in is uh, just like it was back in Space Quest 1. He uh, has an encounter with the Monochrome Boys, a hoverbike gang, gets away from them, and eventually makes his way back to Space Quest 12 to meet his adult son, who turns out to be one of the agents that saved him back in Space Quest 4, defeat Volhall, who actually has taken over his son's body, and uh, after saving him and talking with his son, catches a glimpse of the woman who would one day be his wife and the mother of his son, whose name is Beatrice Wankmeister. Unfortunately, when all is said and done, Roger is returned to his proper time of Space Quest IV. And in doing that, all the events which have transpired outside of this, you know, his time frame will only be remembered by Roger as a vague dream. That is, until he encounters someone in Space Quest V. So, Space Quest IV was released in the winter of 1992. Rave reviews. It sold more copies than all previous Space Quest games combined. It was a revolutionary adventure game for its time. It was using the latest version of Sierra's SCI engine, which allowed it to sport 256 color hand-painted VGA graphics at 320 by 200 and was one of Sierra's first games to use motion capture for the animation sequences. The graphics look great, they're quite detailed, they're quite artistic, they have a really great style, and the animation, in comparison to previous games, and even still to this day, looks incredibly smooth and incredibly awesome. This game also completely dropped the text parser for a total point-and-click interface, 
So along the top of the screen, you would have uh, a group of icons consisting of separate actions such as walk, taste, look, smell, and your inventory and all that. You would either move up to the top, click what you want it to do, and then click on an item, or you could skim through all the different uh, all the different actions using your rice or sorry your right mouse button. Uh, in an interview, the two guys from Andromeda stated that Sierra Upper Management basically shoved this point-and-click interface down their throats. They really wanted to make another text parser, parser game because they felt that there was a lot of humor that was uh, to be had interacting with the text parser. However, they were overridden, and uh, in the end it worked out because the new interface was very, very, very well received by game players. The sound and music were taken even farther than they had been in Space Quest 3, with much more music, much more sound effects, and the great MIDI soundtrack was composed by Sierra composer Ken Allen and truly has an epic scale, as uh, you heard a little bit of as I was talking about, uh, as talking about the game. While Space Quest 3 introduced us to how great MIDI music in the game can be, or in any game can be, Space Quest 4 really, really took it to the next level, and uh, it really helped to create atmosphere and to create fun. So finally, after uh, the initial game release, which was on disc, uh, in March 1991, Space Quest 4 was released in a CD version. Uh, a few of the puzzles in this version were slightly modified, but one major difference was that the CD version lacked co the copy protection that the disc version had. I actually find this, at the time it made total sense to me, but when I think back about it now, it really does seem quite funny. Uh, the copy protection was removed from the CD version because at the time, while well, there were no CD burners and many people didn't even have CD-ROMs, so it was inconceivable that anyone had the ability or the space on which to store something with as much storage as a CD. My lord. So no copy protection. Another and the most noticeable difference between the disc and CD versions of Space Quest IV were that finally we got to hear Roger speak. The game was fully voiced, and the narrator was portrayed by Gary Owens, who is the announcer from Laugh-In, which is even a bit before my time. So uh, you, other people who are a bit younger may know him better as the voice of Space Ghost. So here's a short clip from the intro of the game to get a bit of an idea of what Gary Owens really brought to the game. It's really quite awesome. Join our friend and semi-hero Roger Wilco as he rockets back toward his home planet Xenon, which he hasn't seen since Space Quest II. Having successfully rescued those two ingrates from Andromeda, he decides a pit stop on Magmetheus is in order. So unlike Sam and Max that I talked about in episode one, where casting was this really big production and everyone was a high-class, you know, accomplished voice actor, etc., Aside from Gary Owens, most of the game's voice talent came from within the ranks of Sierra's staff. So at times, there's a bit of a disconnect where, you know, the guy that plays Roger, I think while he was still internal to Sierra, was, wasn't bad, and Gary Owens was incredible. A lot of the other characters really seemed like they were reading, like, oh, Roger, we're so upset that you brah and stuff and things. It's like, you know, it was just a, a, a little bit amateurish. But, you know, at the time, most people didn't notice because it was so incredible that there was a Space Quest game where people were talking. So, Space Quest 4, incredible, incredible success. And that brought us to the next game, which is, of course, Space Quest 
5. This one's a bit different from other games in that it's more of a Star Trek parody, very specifically, than other games. The other games were a little more general in their, in their humor. This one was really very much a spoof of Star Trek. So as you can even tell from this music, it's definitely a bit more of a Star Trek spoof than the previous ones were. So in the aftermath of Space Quest IV, with Roger returned to where he was, he kind of just decided to go, or he didn't decide, but he just went on with what he was doing. And uh, Roger has decided to join Starcon Academy in an attempt to realize his dreams of commanding a starship. Uh, due to a computer malfunction, Cadet Wilco scores perfectly on his Starcon aptitude test and is immediately upon graduation given command of the SCS Eureka, <laughs> a garbage scout, of course. So this game probably has the most complete and linear story and plot of all the Space Quest games. It's also kind of the most complex. So I won't go into an incredible amount of detail on it. I'll just... Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh, the main plot. So the main plot is uh, for Roger to stop a mutagenic disease that is spreading through the galaxy by, and you know, basically he has to discover uh, the source of the disease. And of course, to make things as complicated as possible, when people are infected with the disease, they basically change teams and become horrible ugly, aggressive, but coordinated pucoid mutants. So eventually, in the end, the disease uh, infects the crew members of the SCS Goliath, which is the flagship of the Starcon fleet, and more most importantly, infects the captain of the Goliath, Rames T. Quirk, which, of course, is a, uh, a parody of a, I guess, later movie-era James T. Kirk. Now, he has it out for Roger Wilco. He does not like Captain Roger Wilco, whatsoever and this is magnified when he becomes a pucoid mutant so in the end the goliath attacks the eureka and uh roger is able to take his ship and his crew escape the initial attack sneak up on uh, the goliath using a found and installed by the chief engineer of the eureka cloaking device infiltrate the ship and uh you know, basically eradicate the plague, unfortunately sacrificing his ship in the process. So I mentioned that this game is quite a bit different and has quite a bit of a different feel than uh, all the previous Space Quest games. Now, the main reason for this is because this was the first Space Quest game that was not designed by the two guys from Andromeda. It was only designed by the one guy from Andromeda. Only Mark Crow worked on this project. Scott Murphy by this time had moved on to other things and it was also not developed internally by sierra but by uh mark crow at their sister company dynamics or dynamics i'm not quite sure again how that's pronounced also even though this game came out two years after space quest 4 only a disc-based version was ever created and obviously that did not have any voice acting Aside from that, technically, it was mostly similar to Space Quest IV, aside from the fact that it did use a little bit of pre-rendered uh, 3D animation for the ship, for some of the ship scenes and uh, some of the other scenes in space. Uh, 
Anyways, despite the fact that the game felt a little bit different, had a little bit different humor, and had a little bit of a different approach, uh, I still found it quite fun. It's not my favorite Space Quest game, but uh, I definitely still enjoyed it. Yeah, one thing I forgot to mention since I'm uh, kind of following this thread throughout the uh, series is that once again, this game has you defeating an evil Terminator android. Guess what? Gepazoid Novelties, the company that creates the Labion Terror Beast mating missile, still want their money. And uh, this time, the ter Terminator android is female. Roger defeats her, uh, but doesn't destroy her completely. She only loses her head. And Cliffy, the chief engineer of the Eureka, gathers up all her parts, puts her back together, dials down her aggressiveness, and she becomes the science officer on board the SCS Eureka. So that's Space Quest V. And finally, this brings us to 1995's Space Quest VI, Roger Wilco in the Spinal Frontier, the final game released in the series. So, Space Quest VI begins with Roger Wilco, of course, being a dashing captain in the Starcon fleet. Unfortunately, the first place we see him is being court-martialed, and of course, for various humorous reasons, he is demoted back to his position as janitor second class aboard the SCS Deep Ship 86, which is a bit of a play on, uh, I guess, a combination of Deep Space Nine and Deep Star Six and... All that, and the, the ship bears a striking resemblance to what we like to call an athletic supporter. Uh, so later, after uh, Roger spends some time on the deep ship, uh, the crew is informed that they are to be given shore leave on the planet Polysorbate 60. Meanwhile, an extremely old and wrinkled woman named Sharpay, who actually looks a lot like a Sharpay dog, is uh, revealed to be plotting Roger's demise. It is later revealed that she's the subject of Project Immortality, which was supposed to prolong her life indefinitely. Uh, Roger's adventures in Space Quest VI are a bit more reminiscent of the, uh, of the previous games, where Roger is not a dashing captain, but kind of a bumbling loner. They have him dealing with a T-1000-like endodroid, who surprisingly is not around to collect money for the Le'Veon Terror Beast whistle. Uh, he enters cyberspace, which is mostly a desert, kind of canyon-like area with an office resembling Windows 3.1, and uh, venturing into one of his uh, crewmates, Stellar Santiago's digestive system. Uh, Roger and Stellar develop a bit of a relationship and almost attracts Roger to the point of enamoration for her. But despite this, Roger continuously needs to remind himself that Beatrice, who he was introduced to in Space Quest IV, and I didn't mention actually encounters in Space Quest V, is his, the love of his life and the woman who would one day uh, give birth to his son. The game ends on a cliffhanger with Stellar saying that Roger is basically going to uh, like his next mission. Unfortunately, as we are going to see shortly, uh, 
Roger does not ever get to go on that next mission. So the majority of Space Quest VI was designed by Josh Mandel, and uh, Scott Murphy was eventually, at some point in the development, brought on as a creative consultant. This was the first Space Quest game to really be released only on CD-ROM, and like Space Quest IV, had full voice acting with Gary Owens as the narrator. And uh, here I have a little bit of a a little bit of a thing from him, just to again give you an idea of how the voice acting in Space Quest VI worked. That's one of those devices for catching wayward audio-video signals from distant galaxies. You once saw a horribly violent transmission on one of these, where strange-looking aliens mercilessly struck each other in vulnerable areas, while others looked on in enjoyment. The game also changed graphic style a little bit. It was uh, much more cartoony, and uh, the graphics were really, really great looking in 640 by 480, 256 colors, Super VGA! Uh, I really enjoyed this game at the time, but upon replaying it for the show, I felt it wasn't quite as Space Questy, I guess. I don't really know how to say it, but uh, quite as Space Questy as the uh, as the previous games. It looked great, it sounded great, but I don't know, the humor wasn't quite as on par, I would say, with uh, with the other games. So, Space Quest Seven was announced early in 1997, with Scott Murphy once again on board as lead designer and writer. Unfortunately, in December of that year, the game was placed on indefinite hold, and even more unfortunately by 1999, when Sierra's Oakhurst, California operation shut down, the game had never been restarted. So unfortunately, Space Quest VI was the end of the line for the officially sanctioned Sierra Space Quest games. So where can you get the Space Quest series, all six or seven games, including SQ-1, VGA, where can you get them today? There's actually a lot of places to get uh, the Space Quest series today. The easiest way is probably via both Steam and GOG.com, good old games. Uh, I played the GOG versions, and they are packaged in two sets, Space Quest 1 to 3 and Space Quest 4 to 6. Each set is uh, $9.99 US. This works out quite well, actually, because all of the parser-based games are in the first pack, Space Quest 1 to 3, and all of the point-and-click games are in the second pack, 4 to 6. I played 1 to 5 for the show, and I played a little tiny bit of 6, so I, what I will say, at least in my experience, is that 1 to 3 worked pretty much flawlessly. Uh, the only thing I had to do was uh, modify one little line in, uh, in the DOSBox setup, but again, that was my... Uh, issue, it may not happen to you. Uh, Space Quest 4 and 5 were a little bit crashy, I will say, using the uh, the included DOSBox install. They pretty much ran, ran well, but every once in a while you'd click to do an action and boom, the game would crash. I switched over to using kind of an external installation of the most latest, of the most recent version of DOSBox, and that solved all the issues the games ran without problem whatsoever. So again, if you want to experience Space Quest, then a very easy way to do it is to find it either on Steam or on good old games. You are listening to the Upper Podcast. So, time for emails. I got a really, really great uh, audio comment from my pal Rick Moyer of the Take Him With You podcast and moyermultimedia.com. 
he actually interviews one of his buddies that he uh, used to play Space Quest with. So take it away, Rick. This is Rick Moyer from Aberdeen, Washington, and I loved Space Quest. Of course, everybody knows that because you've dropped my name a million times because I, of course, loved Space Quest. So what I did is I called my friend, who that I used, used to play it with 20-some years ago, and uh, this is the conversation we had. Thanks for your podcast, by the way. I love it. Yeah, I thought I would uh, get a hold of my friend that I used to play Space Quest with when I was a kid or younger. So we're going to see if we can get him. Hey, Rick. Hey, Don. How are you? I am good. What I'm doing is um, I've just called into the Upper Memory Block podcast. I remember very distinctly what, what, 20-some years ago now? Yeah, it was that long ago, believe it or not. Yeah, I remember going to your house after church on Sundays, and uh, we would uh, play on a computer. Now, what type of computer did you have back then? I had a Tandy 1000, so that was that was my pride and joy at that time. And it was state-of-the-art for that time, too. Yeah, I was really happy to even have it. Uh, to have a game I could play on, it just made it that much better. Well, now, how did you, because you discovered Space Quest, how did you find out about it? You know what? I, I think it was my cousin out of California that was into computers probably more so than I that, that, if I remember correctly, got me into it. I remember you coming up to me at the church and saying, you got to come over and see this. And so <laughs> we went over to your house for lunch and then, uh, you know, Amy take a nap or something. And, I, and you and I and Kenny, your brother would sit, yeah. and, and your dad sometimes would join us too, and we would play yeah. Space Quest. Yep. Yep, eat food and play Space Quest till one of us fell asleep or something, uh, <laughs> just tired of trying to think so hard to figure out the next food. So. Well, and that's, I, that's what I think made the game so fun, is you had to actually, it wasn't like nowadays where you kind of have to have coordination <laughs> to yeah. play video games. Yeah. This made you use your brain. Yeah, you had to think of the next dancer or try to figure out what they were, you know, what the next clue could be, and and you may sit on the same uh, same position and you know die uh, 20 times before you figured out what to put together out of your special collection of goods that, that you uh, pick up along would, the way. Yep, that would make it work. Yeah, I remember we had a few. There was a couple of Sundays that we were in the exact same place. We didn't move anywhere because we were stuck. And yeah, and yeah. we didn't have the internet back then like we do today. <laughs> yep. I was just glad they let you save your spot so you didn't uh, have to start over from the beginning. <laughs> That's exactly right. I was so glad that we could save our spots. And yeah. and I remember, um, uh, you know, you couldn't get on the internet to get cheats. And I don't even think they had a hotline you could call. I, I can't remember. If they did, it was really expensive. And so we never called it. Yeah, I mean, not until the last, you know, get towards the last... Uh, game or two that they put together then you get those the little cheat books and stuff but i think that that kind of ruined it for me because the the challenge of being able to figure it out was was better than actually being able to go through the game i um, I, I agree so out of all the space quest things that came out there was six of them which which one was your favorite uh that was a long time ago rick i would have to say the first the first few of them um were definitely 
definitely the, of course, the, the excitement of finding something that you really enjoy. That was fun. And then, and then just to continue on, you know, you'd finish it, and all you could do is look forward to the next one that came out. Yeah. So the first few were definitely, of course, as time went by and, and other things came out. Um, but even out of all the other Quest games we tried at that time, it was my favorite by far. It was just something about being the, the you know, the underdog and being able to conquer the universe that was, yeah. was just uh, very rewarding at the time. And, Roger uh, Wilco, space awesome. space janitor. <laughs> uh, it was fun. And it kept you... Uh, the other things about the other Quest teams were you either had to be really good at some of the some of the required, you know, like in police question, you had to t know exactly what to tell the, the person to do or what your requirements were. Uh -huh. And then in Queen's Quest, it was such a big territory that I got lost. Yeah. And so it was something about knowing, I knew that I was at the right place. I just had to figure out what to put together to make it work. That's true. So and you, that that you, made it very fun. Yeah. And you know what, really, I, I, I would say number one and two are also my favorites. And, and the reason being, part of it was just because we played it with you guys. And yeah. that was... That that made it really fun. I think playing it alone, you could do it, and I did. You know, I did the rest of them alone, but yeah. the but it wasn't quite as fun. Yeah. yeah and and so. the humor these guys have, absolutely oh, yeah. hysterical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The comments and the tongue in cheek and the sarcasm was was really a surprise every time. You know, you think you did something wrong, and they made sure you knew you. I I, I think at the the uh, the good old light the fire in the garbage can to set up the sprinklers is, with the toilet you know, paper yeah but you just you had to think of it oh well, yeah and you also had to write it in you know it wasn't just like you could just make him do it you had to be creative enough to put the right words together yeah it was amazing that the computer could figure out what we were saying you know obviously the writers did an excellent job at, at being creative but then also thinking of all the different ways to do that and i don't know how they did it but uh, i know i really enjoyed it yeah i did too well i just i just thought of you immediately when i heard they were going to cover this and and i thought i'm going to call and just say hi because i remember how much fun we had playing space quest and so thanks again for the great memories and uh, don it was great to talk to you sure thank you back to you joe thanks again for your podcast it rocks well, thanks a lot for that, Rick. That was really, really awesome. And, you know, I really do have to agree with uh, with some of those comments there. You know, this, would, despite the fact that this was a single-player game, it really, really was kind of a social experience when you sat down with your friends and tried to rack your brains to figure out, you know, what it was to do and, you know, that maybe to destroy the androids, you had to set the garbage can and the paper on fire with the match before they attacked you and... You know, when you figured that out, it was the greatest feeling in the world because you had literally been sitting there, as as you said, standing in the same place for maybe hours or for the whole night, and you figure it out, and oh my god, it was it was great. So thanks again for that, and you know, if anyone else has uh, any comments, feel free. It doesn't have to be quite as detailed as that. You don't have to interview anyone. You can just write me an email or send me a quick audio comment to podcast at umbcast.com. So does Space Quest, the series in general as a whole, and the games individually, do they hold up today? I guess that is, uh, that's kind of a tough question. I mean, there's, there's six games here. They span, you know, basically 10 years. 
and all that, but uh, overall, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, the dynamics of these Sierra adventure games are really, really quite different from any games that uh, that are around today. You know, there's there's no autosaves, there's no checkpoints, there's no retries, there's no hints that you may be forgetting something that'll lead you to a dead end much later on. You know, at the time, and even to this day, you know, fans of the series, me included, argue that, you know, this type of gameplay keeps players on their toes. But in the world of gaming today, we're used to so many quality of life improvements, like all the ones I just mentioned, that, uh, you know, these games did not have by design to make them a challenge. So, you know, they were designed to rack your brain. They were designed to frustrate you in the most hilarious and entertaining ways possible. But at the end of the day, they were still designed to be very, you know, very difficult to get through. Uh, the humor was great. The writing is still great. The humor is still great. Uh, the puzzles are still great. Overall, these are really, really, really fun games that tell really interesting stories with, you know, a bumbling everyman hero that we can all relate to on some level. You know, I personally really love these games, so it's very hard to be objective, or for me to be objective about them. So, you know, will you enjoy them? I think you should, at the very least, give one or two of them a try to find out. So finally, I think we need to talk about the uh, the future of the Space Quest franchise. So Space Quest has a huge fan community, and it's still quite an active fan community. Uh, a few weeks ago, Infamous Adventures released uh, a fan remake of Space Quest Two. You can find that over at infamousadventures.com. And this was kind of a very cool event because Space Quest Two is really the only uh, Space Quest game that has never been updated to kind of the level of, you know, kind of a more modern level. You know, Space Quest Three. well, it hasn't really been updated. It in and of itself was more of a modern game. And Sierra made the official Space Quest One remake but um you know space quest 2 the only version of it was still the original sierra ega beeping tandy you know pc speaker version so i think it's really cool i haven't had a chance to try it yet because uh i spent the last two weeks playing through the other five official sp space quest games but uh, i'm definitely going to give it a go and you know on top of that there's a whole bunch of other existing uh fan productions of space quest there's uh space quest i believe it's called space quest zero the lost chapter i mean if you go to, over to uh roger wilco's virtual broom closet and the spacequest.net forums you can find references to all these great fan games and you know they're they're supported by the community they're supported by the two guys from andromeda and the other people that worked on the original games so you know that is uh that's really great and now, I guess the other big news about uh, the future of Space Quest is the, the thing that I mentioned last week. The two guys from Andromeda are back together. They have kicked off their Kickstarter. It started right before uh, last week's episode when I brought it up. And, um, you know, it is doing quite quite well. They're just shy, I think, of uh, a 50% funded. And I think they still have something to the effect of 24, 23 days remaining and uh you know this kickstarter is uh is 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 pretty cool it's pretty special i mean uh in comparison to other kickstarter projects that i've seen so far uh scott and mark really do make themselves very accessible to the fans you know they're they're very active on twitter they reply to many 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 uh tweets that that fans send they're active on the spacequest.net forums they have kind of their own uh sub forum 
there just for their Kickstarter and them and their kind of, uh, he's not their publicist, but kind of their, their, their PR guy and the guy that's kind of helping them manage their Kickstarter, Chris Pope, is, is also very active over there and he's very approachable. He's approachable for interviews uh, where the, you know, the two guys are doing a bunch of stuff. They've had an article on Gama Sutra or Gama Sutra or whatever it's called and then they're going to be on a bunch of podcasts and you know they're basically out and about putting out the the word of of space venture which is the name of the the kickstarter which is going to be a looks like a really fun game in the spirit of space quest and in the spirit of roger wilco with all the same great puzzles and all the same types of great humor and great gags and great hilarious deaths and arcade sequences and and everything like that they're really in um kind of a brainstorming phase right now, but one cool thing that they are doing that no one has really done before is every time they hit an additional $100,000 uh, level of support, they put out kind of a prototype. So when they hit $100,000, they put out this really simple uh, prototype in uh, in Chrome, in Google Chrome, that, uh, you know, where you had a character who looked suspiciously like Roger Wilco and you could walk him kind of through an environment and get him over to um, a little island where the two guys from Andromeda were hanging out so that was number one it was cool it was interesting uh, you know some people kind of wanted a bit more and uh thought it was a little underwhelming i thought it was great for what it was but uh you know you can go check that out and now that they've hit uh they're over two hundred thousand dollars we are pending the uh the second the second prototype so that should be interesting to see uh, as i understand it it's going to be building on the first kind of black and white hand sketched prototype and maybe it'll have a bit more functionality and a bit more interaction and maybe some music but i guess we'll see uh the two guys also have a podcast that you can listen to it's done by as i said their their pr rep type guy chris pope and um you know scott and mark have both been on it i believe they're into their fourth episode they've been on it twice and uh they also in episode three i believe interviewed uh, ken allen who i don't think he's committed to being on board to do the music for this one but uh, he's very much in support of the project as is ken williams former ceo of sierra so you know it's really really cool and if you guys want to go check it out there's a, a a nice url to get there if you go to tgakick.com you can uh, definitely go see what there is to see with regard to the two guys from Andromeda's Space Venture Kickstarter. And I really do hope that this one funds because as I've just been talking about for the last, you know, a good more than an hour, uh, these were really fun games and I would love to see a new game in the same, uh, in the same spirit as these six great games that, uh, that I've just talked about. Hi, my name's Kenny, and I'm a fanboy. Do you like Star Trek, Star Wars, Harry Potter? Do you consider yourself a brown coat or a twihard? Are you into cosplaying, LARPing, a furry? Can you speak Klingon or Elvish? Can you name all the doctors and their companions? Do you just love football or can't get enough of your favorite music group? Then this podcast is for you, Confessions of a Fanboy. Each episode, I sit down with a fanboy or fangirl and discuss their fandom and how it affects their daily lives. Be it geeky, sporty, or musical, fandoms can span a wide range of people. So come subscribe to Confessions of a Fanboy on iTunes. Or visit us online at confessionsofafanboypodcast.com and take a listen to fellow fans talk about the love for their fandom. 
So that is that for another episode of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I hope I really gave you guys a bit of a, at the very least, a general overview of Space Quest and why all the games in the uh, in the series were fun and interesting and special. And you know, hopefully that hopefully uh, someone will want to to give it a look that hasn't seen it before. And maybe even if you played them way back, you know, twenty years ago or more, then. Uh, you know, maybe you'll be willing to to give them another try and and try and recapture some of those fun memories from trying to get Roger through his life without uh, without encountering a horrible, horrible, horrible death. So thanks again, thanks everyone, thank you to Rick Moyer not only for your really great uh, voicemail this week, but for all the bumpers that I use as well. And uh, next week I'm going to try something a little bit different. We're actually not going to talk about a game next week i'm going to try and do maybe a bit more of a technical kind of propeller heady show where i talk about emulation on uh, on current machines kind of on current windows xp windows vista windows 7 and macintosh machines you know to try and uh, and get these old games to work so i'm going to talk about stuff like dosbox virtualization in general scum vm and all the different tools and different ways that you can get these cool old games to run on your modern computer system so at last, to close out the show, uh, I have a really cool song for you guys. Uh, in my research, you know, scouring the internet for all the information that I could find on Space Quest, I spent a bit of time in the SpaceQuest.net forums and came across this really great kind of metal cover of uh, Space Quest 4. It's kind of a Space Quest 4 soundtrack medley by, uh, by an artist named Brandon Bloom. He's quite an active member kind of in the Space Quest fan community in general and uh you know you can find this song and more of his great work at his website brandonbloom.com which i'll link in the show notes so we'll end off with that thank you guys so much for listening as usual you can send me an email at podcast at umbcast.com you can check out the show's twitter at umb show and please seek out the facebook group we have a lot of fun in there and we will see you next time in the upper memory block
don't have enough memory to view the hint book.
You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.